Zdravstvujte, everybody. Welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. I had originally planned to post an episode today that was on the lighter, funnier side. I remember myself laughing through most of it as we recorded it. Uh, but uh, because of the war in Ukraine, I have decided to postpone that. It didn't seem appropriate for the moment. Uh, and to switch it out with another one, which is on a topic slightly more tragic and grim, uh, which is... Uh, the difficulty of surviving childbirth and infancy uh, in you know, pre-modern societies, in Byzantium in particular. I had thought of an elaborate comparison uh, between the difficulty of mothers and infants surviving childbirth and, and the birth pang of new states uh, that emerged from the collapse of empires. In a certain sense, uh, it's kind of what we're, what we're seeing. I'm obviously not referring to you know, cultures or nations or societies or civilizations, but, but specifically to states. I have a very distinct memory of the messiness and cruelty with which it all played out in the 90s in Yugoslavia. A set of wars that everyone seems to have forgotten, at least journalists do, writing about the conflict that's going on right now but which was, in a certain sense, part of the same process. But upon reflection, I found such comparisons to be too precious for the moment. Instead, I want to note that this podcast receives about 40 downloads a month from uh, Russia and Ukraine alike. And uh, I'm sure that, given the approach that we take on this podcast to many issues, that uh, all of you uh, are appalled at what is going on. And in particular, I would like to call out to a, a Ukrainian-American art historian I met over 20 years ago who spoke with great passion and eloquence uh, on the underlying issues that have ultimately given rise to this horrific conflict uh, and who predicted it uh, pretty, pretty well. Um, and back then, of course, you know, the world was just that part of the world was just emerging from the Soviet Union and you know, our, our current entanglements and configurations were far beyond the horizon, but uh, she was pretty in touch uh, with some of the underlying issues. And I, I, don't, I don't know if she listens to this podcast, um, but I just wanted to say, if she does, that I remember everything that she said um, and it was spot on, very prophetic. I uh, also remember all the Ukrainian phrases that she taught me, <laughs> and uh, and so I, I feel um, far closer to this story than I might otherwise have been. So anyway, I have been thinking about her these past few weeks, and I hope that she's well. Uh, on to our topic uh, of the day. A while ago, I conceived the plan of uh, creating a series of episodes that were sort of loosely interlinked around the topic of uh, sort of the, the Byzantine life cycle. I'm not sure that I'll be able to get very far uh, with that. Um, there's always a difficulty of finding the right person at the right time with the right work and so forth. But occasionally I, I will dip back into this topic and maybe uh, in a few months or years <laughs> be able to get through the Byzantine life cycle. So the best place to start is at the beginning, and that is with birth, and in particular with the difficulties of surviving it. 
And the best person to talk to us about that is Christian Glass, uh, who has been on the podcast before. Check out episode 25 on disability. He is a professor at the University of Manchester uh, and is one of the best scholars who works on both people's greatest passions and loves and pleasures on the one hand and also the most tragic, difficult decisions and situations that they face on the other hand. So this is work that requires the use of many different sources uh, which are difficult to collate and make to interface in order to get a rounded picture of uh, issues such as disability and uh, childbirth and uh, infant mortality and so forth. But he does so um, and is very necessary work. Um, as you will see, he's very uh, eloquent and uh, compassionate and humane in speaking about um, all of these issues. And in particular, we'll be talking about the first moments, first weeks, the first months of a person's life, and both clearing up some misconceptions that exist about ancient and you know medieval societies, uh, but also reinforcing some uh, findings of, of of scholarship and the study of demography uh, in pre-modern societies that you know paint a rather grim picture. So. I remember, well, maybe this was I was an undergraduate student uh, when I read in textbooks that <laughs> ancient fathers, for example, were not emotionally attached to their children and <laughs> that they could, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down on whether the child lives or toss it out uh, or something like that or uh, that um, or that infanticide was widely practiced in the ancient world and you know, for some reason you had an unwanted pregnancy or an unwanted child, you just leave it outside on a trash heap and it'll die or someone will take it, you know, whatever. Uh, I don't think that's true. But you would also read that life expectancy at birth was very, very low and that families had to have very, very many children um, if they hoped to have a few of them survive to adulthood. And this produced a very different set of um, life expectations for, for families and for children uh, and involved very a great deal of loss and tragedy in family and personal history. And yeah, all of that's true. Um, and so we need to keep all of that in mind whenever we're talking about pre-modern society. The experiences and emotional structure and demography of the family was so different from our own expectations. Thankfully, I have linked to two articles uh, by Christian on these topics uh, in the description of the podcast episode. Many thanks to Medievalist.net for reposting uh, all of these episodes. And so without any further delay, uh, here's my conversation with Christian Lives. Christian, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Anthony. It's such an honor and a pleasure to be back. So thanks for having me. Oh, no, thank you for coming. Um, so I really like your work, I have to say. And you work on a, a wide variety of topics, but also you work on very difficult and necessary topics, right? So there are things that our written sources really like to tell us about, you know, like wars and politics and things like this. And there are things that they like almost never want to talk about at all, either because these things are too banal or they're beneath their notice or they, they don't, you know, concern the high and mighty. 
And yet these are very, very important things that we want to know about. And your work has sort of systematically targeted all these very important aspects of life in antiquity that you have to excavate in so many different places. And I'm using excavate metaphorically. Um, I mean, you don't actually excavate, do you? Mm, rarely. Okay. Only when I look for some inscriptions in, in, in certain Italian towns, but, but I'm not an archaeologist. No, okay. So I rarely you, excavate, yeah. You pull our knowledge together from so many different kinds of sources. It, it's wonderful. So today we'll be talking about, well, childbirth and infancy in the first days of life, really. Mm-hmm. And so let me just start with a question that might not be obvious to the audience, which is, so in your writings, you refer to this liminal period between biological birth and social birth. And I don't think that this is something that exists for modern infants anymore, because I think Facebook and the cameras (laughs) get involved, you know, right at the moment of of biological birth. And so we've, we've sort of collapsed that difference. But can you explain for us in like the Roman Empire, early Byzantine Empire, what is that period between biological birth and social birth? And what's the status of the infant during that period? Yeah, okay. Um, well, I don't think I need to explain what biological birth is, but a social birth, of course, is, is a concept that, which is kind of uh, strange to us. Uh, it basically means that uh, the baby at a certain moment gets recognized that he sort of uh, enters the social life and that happens at a certain day and in between so the interval between the biological birth and the social birth in between you can consider you can consider perhaps or you can uh, uh, consider the baby something as well more now i quote from the ancient authors perhaps more a plant than uh, a real uh, living uh, being. Uh, perhaps the baby not being like 100% fully recognized already. Um, and so the big question is, when did this happen? When, when, when was social birth? Um, I'd like to refer to only uh, one and two days ago. So in the um, old Roman liturgy, um, so on the 1st of January, it's actually um, the Feast of the Circumcision of uh, Jesus Christ. And uh, the 2nd of January is the name of Christ. Mm. So this is already a good example, of course. Uh, in the gospel, it is said that on the 8th day, uh, Jesus got circumcised and also got his Name So the eighth day, which is also considered of, uh, connected, of course, to the holy number seven, um, is one of these days that are often mentioned for the social birth. If we start in the Greek tradition, there's some mention, so ancient classical Greek tradition, there's some mention of the fifth day. Uh, there's mention of the seventh day, so seven coming back again. And in the Roman tradition, there's mention of the so-called uh, dies lustricus, which is a day which involves also name-giving and sort of ritual cleansing, and which is mostly situated at the ninth day for boys, again, sort of holy number, nine, and at the eighth day for girls. According to Plutarch, this difference between boys and girls is there because men were supposed to be somewhat more 
perfect than women. So it took one day more, of <laughs> course, for them to develop into this uh, social birth. And uh, one of your questions, of course, was, well, what happens in this period in between? Um, anthropological uh, comparative evidence will uh, teach us that often uh, the child was not really named in this interval period, which is sort of interesting because you mentioned uh, the Facebook and, and often people will already reveal whether it is a boy or a girl and, and what the name will be and so on and so on. Well, before social birth, the, the child is more something like it. Yeah? So not yet named. And, and, and I remember having spoken to, to people on, on Greek islands about this, and, and they would say me also that, that they would often speak about Tovrefos, uh, or more, more recently now, of course, it's also Tobebi, so just the baby, and then the name would just be there at the moment of baptism, which brings me, of course, to uh, Byzantine times too, and to the importance of Christianity, it is often said that uh, baptism sort of took over this role and that baptism in a way is also um, the social birth uh, for Christianity. And then again, of course, you might ask me, when did this happen from the sixth century on? There was uh, infant baptism. So when, when did this happen in the case of, uh, of uh, infants? And then again, you see that there are many traditions. So um, one tradition would say, well, it would be appropriate to have the child baptized, baptized at the eighth day. Another period that is often mentioned is uh, after 40 days. 40 being connected, of course, with uh, the Jewish tradition. So um, the, um, uh, the mother who had given birth was only uh, purified after a period of 40 days. And so when you read, for instance, with uh, Patriarch Nicholas III, so end of the 11th century, you will, say that you will see that he mentions uh, 40 days as the appropriate period for, for baptism, social birth. He also mentions the possibility of the eight days and kind of interesting too, he also explicitly says that any time right after birth is the right time when the child, when the baby is somehow uh, in danger. When he turns to, uh, to uh, when he turns out to be very weak uh, and when there is a danger of the baby uh, almost dying immediately, it is in the concept of Christianity very important that it gets baptized as soon as possible. Yeah. So one of the problems that people in pre-modern times faced is um, infant mortality um, mm -hmm. on a far greater scale than you know we're accustomed to. And this sort of waiting period might have been in part due to the fear that, well, the infant might not survive. And, you know, let, let's make sure that the infant survives or, you know, has mm -hmm. the prospect of surviving before we mm -hmm. socially invest, you know, in, in giving it sure. a social identity and so forth. Sure, sure. So what were the odds? Right yeah. Do, do we know anything about the odds of an infant surviving childbirth um, mm -hmm. or, or to the first year? I mean, how can we begin to calculate that? Yeah. Uh, again, well, we know quite a lot, but again, we don't know this from the ancient sources, which are, of course, never uh, concerned about uh, demography. Uh, these authors do not know uh, statistics and so on and so on. But again, uh, by doing comparative uh, research, 
we can sort of figure out. And these uh, numbers, these statistics, really look horrible to our contemporary point of view. Let me give you an example. So imagine that 100 uh, babies are born. Well, it is said that out of this cohort, uh, 33 would not reach their first birthday. And of these 100 babies, only 50, so half, would reach the age of 10. So I think you're very right to say that uh, the whole concept of the social birth is a sort of uh, protection, could even be a sort of emotional protection too, because you sort of know that these very first days after birth are such um, dangerous days that there is a considerable risk of the child uh, not surviving. According to these same statistics, which, by the way, come from model life tables, as the World Health Organization has developed them, from these same statistics, we know that, for instance, in antiquity, you should imagine um, uh, instances of between 1,000 and 1,700 deaths out of 100,000 births. So if you would have 100,000 births, there will be about 10 till uh, about 1,000 till 1,700 of these infants almost dying uh, immediately. And uh, these are shocking numbers. But uh, if you look nowadays, for instance, uh, at countries uh, in the sub-Sahara, it is still something like 546 deaths out of 100,000 births. And the worst countries nowadays um, are, for instance, uh, Afghanistan, where you even have higher numbers. And uh, folkloristic evidence will tell you that uh, throughout all centuries and all over the past, and even nowadays also, uh, people realized that there was considerable risk in this childbirth. Let me just uh, quote you, if I'm allowed to, an Alsatian saying sure. or proverb. It says in Alsatian, Jeden Kinder better had en fus in grab, which means something like each child bed has like one foot in the grave. Right. So if this is a, the first podcast in a series on the Byzantine life cycle, we've already gotten to the end for some of our subjects here uh, very quickly. Um, so wh what do we know about infant burial? So this is, mm -hmm. you know, either before the moment of or right after the moment of social birth. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, we have um, excavated graves. So what else do we know? Yeah, um, I'd say if I just have to summarize it in one sentence that uh, these infants were also buried and that the concept of social birth does not need to mean that uh, people didn't care about these infants before they got their social birth. Of course, also in the archaeological records, um, uh, infants, so small babies, are very much underrepresented. And some archaeologists have interpreted this as saying, well, perhaps uh, people just didn't take care of these uh, burials. But if we have a look at the Byzantine times, but I would say that this also counts for, for uh, Greek and Roman antiquity, you would say that you would see that quite often uh, small infants were even uh, buried at the same places as adults. 
So just at common burial uh, places. Uh, you would see that in Greco-Roman antiquity, but also for Byzantine times, there are instances also of sort of uh, special graves for uh, small children uh, who had died. There are instances also of very small children, babies being uh, buried in the vicinity of the house, or even, uh, there are some cases known in Byzantine Athens of this, um, babies being buried uh, beneath uh, the floor of the house. Um, there is uh, a Latin word for this um, sort of burial, which is called sugrundaria, which is mentioned uh, in late antiquity by the author Fulgensius, but it's a tradition. So being buried beneath the floor of the house, in a way, staying close to your family, it's a tradition you find both for the Latin West uh, as for, and for the, the Greek East. There's also um, a tradition called the enchutrismos, which basically means that the, the body of the very small child, obviously, is uh, buried in a sort of uh, huge uh, vase. And uh, so these traditions of, of, of burial uh, do point at a certain care and a sort of uh, a certain attention also being paid to these uh, small infants. So it's not sure, of course, infant mortality was, was massive. That's the least one can say. But that does not automatically mean that there were no uh, infants who were taken care of even after their death. So as burial is concerned. Yeah, I want to come back um, a bit later to the question of parental affection, because I occasionally read some very strange things about that um, in the mm -hmm. scholarship. But I, I want to stay for now on the topic of the dangers that uh, infants um, were in. And another one that is often mentioned is that of that in the ancient world and late antiquity, that infants were often exposed, which is a euphemism for either killed or allowed to die through neglect, you know, either by literally being left out in the elements or something like that, or that they were given away uh, or sold to be raised as slaves. Um, so I, I know that there are sources that talk about this. I often suspect they, I mean, they might be rhetorical in like a bad way, right? Like that this might be some kind of trope that you use in certain rhetorical contexts. Do we know how widespread this practice might have been? I mean, is it really attested? And um, why would parents engage in this sort of thing? Because it sounds mm -hmm. pretty abhorrent. Sure, sure. It's a very difficult topic. Uh, again, I need to say that we, we don't have any statistics concerning this. Mm -hmm. Obviously not. Um, but it's it's uh, it's really a multi-sided uh, question, and I think the the, the answer uh, needs to be uh, very nuanced too. First of all, um, I'd like to point out that um, child uh, or infant exposure doesn't really equal uh, infanticide, killing, uh, elimination, or whatever. Um, it is very well possible, surely in smaller communities, that when a mother, for one reason or another, cannot take care of a child, that she just puts it away somewhere in a place. But because of the fact that the community is small, everybody really knows whose child this is. Mm. And, and there might be another couple just taking care of the child and just taking it in their house as if it were their own child. And that is, of course, very different from, from uh, infanticide or elimination or selling um, uh, into slavery and so on and so on. Now, there has been some uh, counting being done on uh, sort of 
sources of supply of slaves, mostly for the Roman Empire. And there, uh, scholars would say that we need to take into account that there was a significant number of, 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 of uh, uh, foundlings, so just children mm. being found and being picked up by, by slave, uh, by sort of slave owners who sort of raised them, educated them, and then sold them with, with profit. So that there was sort of business going on there, sort of selling of children who, who had been exposed in, in early infancy. So uh, I'm sure that that must have been there. Um, as for the decision of not having the child live, um, there are some indications that this happened too. And I would like to make the point here that this is one of these themes which is really um, shrouded in silence. So anthropology will teach us that this is the kind of thing that people just do not like to mention afterwards. Right. But it happened. Um, often, also in Byzantine times, often the... Um, um, Giving birth was a, a, a well a thing that happened uh, um, in circles of women, obviously. So there's the mother and there's the midwife. And there are some indications uh, about the midwife sort of testing the viability of the infant. Now, of course, there wasn't any medical diagnostics as we have it nowadays. So what would, you, what would we imagine by... Uh, Testing. Well, of course, the midwife would have an idea of the appropriate weight, although they never thought of it in kilos and so on and so on. But she would mm -hmm. have, mm -hmm. by experience, a sort of idea. She would, of course, uh, be able to test sort of sensory, uh, sensory reactions of the child. She would have a knowledge. Uh, also, she would have have a knowledge also of of, of the limbs. What what would be appropriate? What not? Perhaps also the color of the skin. And 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 she would see when 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 something was perhaps seriously wrong. And there, I think that we always need to take into account the possibility that surely very weak babies or disabled babies, as we would call them now, that there was a significant chance that they did not survive. Um, it is basically, this is very cruel to say, I know, but it's basically uh, very much possible just to put the child away for a few hours. You don't need to do anything mm -hmm. and that it will sort of die automatically. And of course, this is a thing that you, that you don't really like to mention afterwards. So it won't be uh, mentioned that often in the sources. This being said, I would never ever want to make the point that Greco-Roman antiquity or uh, Byzantium, that they were societies that did not allow um, disabled babies to live. There's plenty of examples of people of whom we know that they had a sort of congenital birth defect, but that they uh, survived and even uh, sometimes made careers and so on and so on. So... I would say it depends very much on, on, on very concrete individual uh, conditions. Um, what yeah. if, for instance, uh, a couple has been uh, longing for, for a boy for many years, and now the first boy is there? Well, he doesn't really look healthy, but of course they don't have sophisticated diagnostics. So mm -hmm. perhaps it will get better in a few years, 
and they just keep the child. What also about all sorts of, of uh, disabilities uh, which are not discovered right after birth? So there are cases of blindness, cases of deafness, which you just don't recognize from birth on. When you have the child for two or three years, of course, you're not going to decide to, right. to just get rid of him or her. And I would say that one of the reasons why we, why we as scholars are so much interested in this is that um, in the 30s of the 20th century, these very few, admittedly very few texts, ancient texts that mention this elimination of weak life have been uh, abused by uh, Nazi scholars. And so they would like to, they made the point that, that surely a Greek society was like a strong society and that they refer to Sparta and so on. Yeah. And that this society would just not allow disabled life to live, to continue. And so, so there's lots of studies about Hitler in his propaganda, also uh, referring to, uh, to the Greeks. And then in the 50s, you get a sort of reaction. Then scholars will say, well, actually, you cannot blame uh, ancient Greeks and Romans for this because they didn't do this. And, and this was not like eugenetics and so on and so on, which is, which is obviously true. But, but I guess that because of this horrible abuse that was there in the 30s of the 20th century, that, that we are, are sort of very, very much focused on this and that we sometimes want to sort of, um, um, sort of forgive uh, the ancient authors and say, well, this was not what they meant, uh, which is partly true. But on the other hand, um, if you go to anthropological evidence, uh, for instance, I think of what uh, missionaries will often write, they will uh, write that uh, one of the striking things that happened to them is when they go to certain countries, uh, what they have to do in the beginning is just uh, doing like emergency baptism all the time. People just say, well, the child cannot live, just have him baptized or have her baptized and that's it. But we just cannot afford to have this uh, disabled baby. So this is a reality that also uh, exists. And of course, one would ask, well, what for the Byzantine Empire? Because of course, Christianity is, is, is like 100% opposed to such practices. But also there, a comparative evidence will, will uh, teach us that although church uh, opposes such practices, that it, that it happened. Yeah? And the best example, this is a statistic example, a statistical example, by the way, uh, the best Christian example is uh, from early 15th century uh, Florence, when you have, where you have the uh, Ospedale degli Innocenti, so the hospital for the innocent children, where at a certain moment, 2% of all inhabitants of Florence were actually foundlings living in this hospital. Wow. Can you imagine? This is huge because 2% are wow. only the survivors. Right. Yeah? Because yeah. most of, or many of them would have just died on the streets. And of course, they, they didn't make it into the hospital. And this is, of course, in a profoundly Christian Catholic context. So it was still there. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So this is reality we should face also for Byzantine times, um, uh, exposure of children um, and sometimes even not having the child living was, was a reality 
which was there. But again, this doesn't mean that there was anything as systematic elimination. This doesn't mean that there were no um, disabled children uh, surviving. Sure. Um, Christian, that was an excellent and, and nuanced sort of statement of, about our, our knowledge of this, this, this very difficult question. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad we recorded that because <laughs> I want to keep it also for my own uh, sort of archives. Right. Um, and yeah, what I was referring to when I mentioned rhetoric was actually, I, I, I think I'm referring more to like early Christian writings that accuse, you know, traditional Greco-Roman pagan society of cruelty towards children. And they're mm -hmm. often like, um, what's the word? Um, attributing the sins of the ancient gods to the societies yes. that worship them, right? And so you have, you know, Kronos eating his children and Hera throwing Hephaestus off of Olympus and things like that. Mm -hmm. And Christian writers would say, well, yeah, this is how you treat children. Like, And it's this kind of blurring of the world of the gods and their worshipers. And then, of course, mm -hmm. yes, there's a whole question of Sparta and a big debate about yeah. the Ikeadas and, and, and all that. But, okay, we don't need to get into that. But yeah, there are these. Often, indeed, also with, with early Christian writers, it's always like uh, us and them. So yes. we do not do this. Yes. They do this. Uh, on the other hand, I remember a passage with, with uh, Ambrose and Ambrose saying that uh, an eagle sometimes chooses not to raise one, one little bird. And then he calls this a sort of wise decision. And then he goes on. It's sort of ugly duck tale because another mother, another bird will mm. take care of, of the little uh, infant bird. But, but still it is there, you know, and he says, uh, he mentioned something like a wise judgment. So I'd imagine that that people, that his readers uh, would recognize something. Right, right. So speaking of the ancient gods, <laughs> Kronos and Zeus, and so there's a widespread opinion that I keep reading that ancient fathers were rather mm -hmm. distant, cold, and indifferent when it came to their infant children, like not emotionally okay. invested in them. And that this allegedly, you know, made it easier for them to expose them or to, you know, set them aside and let them die if they were uh, mm -hmm. ill or something like this. Yeah. And I have the impression that this isn't true at all. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I'm this glad that in your articles, you, you kept coming back to this issue, I think. And, you know, maybe I misinterpreted, but I thought you were kind of doing it as a corrective to that view that no, actually ancient parents love their children, you know, from the moment they were born sure, for the most absolutely. part. And these were very difficult choices. Mm -hmm. um, so what do we have? Do you have any evidence about, um, mm -hmm. you know, fathers and infant children? Sure. Sure, absolutely. So, so I would never ever make a claim like this that that uh, that fathers in antiquity were sort of distanced or 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 indifferent even to towards their little babies. That that's a claim I would never make. Of course, it's interesting where it comes from, and there are reasons for for a claim like this. So this has to do, I guess, with this sort of um, stern, severe image of the. Uh, Roman, specifically Roman, mm. uh, pater familias. Mm. It also has to do with a sort of expression uh, in Latin, which says tolere liberos, liberos, which literally means to lift up your children. And this was interpreted as a sort of acceptance that they were allowed to live because mm. the pater familias had the right of, uh, on life and death of his, well, of all his uh, descendants, of all his children. Um, so the image, I guess, comes from there. Uh, but first of all, tolere liberos uh, is not that gesture of acceptance as we 
have often thought it was, so this is just a misinterpretation. And uh, the pater familias was basically, well, Romans would always say that this was something very typical of them. It's sort of, it's something that sort of constitutes constitutes their being Roman, but it doesn't always uh, relate to reality. Yeah, and of course, as as you know much better than me, so so, so also in Byzantine law would just uh, refrain from that uh, image of pater familias, which mm-hmm. was sensed as a very uh, Roman thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that for for the image and where it comes from, uh, I would like to point out that even when you would have uh, the sort of idea of of of, of distant behavior that this distance does not necessarily imply um, indifference or absence of emotions. On the contrary, so it may be the case that a man, that a father, uh, was supposed to show less affection, but that doesn't mean that that he didn't care about the children. And even there, I would be very doubtful because there are some very nice Byzantine examples also of fathers explicitly caring very much or mourning about their uh, children. Um, let me just give two examples. There's, of course, uh, uh, well, and I just refer the uh, the audience to your beautiful translations, but there's Michael Pselos, who uh, actually writes about the death of his, of his uh, nine-year-old uh, daughter, Stiliani. And this is, well, it's such a beautiful text. And mm-hmm. it, 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 well, um, it, it, it's most touching when also to a contemporary audience. So this is a man. This is like the Byzantine Cicero. This is like the great rhetorician. But he's not, he was always concerned about self-representation. But he's not... Uh, worried about showing his deep emotions for his uh, daughter who died at such an early age. Uh, and if we think about uh, the life, for instance, of Theophanos, or the, uh, the wife to, to Emperor Leo VI, uh, ninth century, late ninth century evidence. So we read that um, Theophanos' uh, mother had died when she was just some days old, when she was a, a little infant. And so what you get there is, again, a sort of very touching emotional discussion description of her father being desperate and looking, of course, for another woman who could uh, breastfeed the little Theophano. And and he obviously cares a lot about his little uh, baby daughter and he shows it, well, at least it's, it's, it's described as such in the life of Theophano again. So this is a sort of model behavior that was allowed also to a man. Yeah, so now that you mentioned the imperial court um, and you know, the births and, and uh, uh, infant death and, and mother death that, that happened in it pretty regularly over the centuries, and it, it happens to be some of the most well-documented uh, of um, uh, you know, people in Byzantium or in, in the court. Uh, so... In one of your articles, you paint a very striking picture of the birth of an imperial heir in Constantinople. So what were some of the traditions that accompanied that? Imperial children 
were born in a purple room, and that's why they were called uh, porphyrogeneti, so literally being born in the, the purple. Yeah. And uh, we happen to have that, that a beautiful uh, book of ceremonies written by the uh, emperor Constantine Porphyrogenetos, in which he really describes what happens when an imperial baby, to say so, was uh, born. Let me just point out uh, some details. So according to the Book of Ceremonies, um, the whole ceremony happens on the eighth day following the child's birth. That's again interesting, of course. It brings us again to the idea of the social birth. Mm. Um, um, it appears to be the case that the, the bedroom of the empress who had given birth, that it was decorated with cloth of gold and with all sorts of, of uh, candles also. There must have been lots of candlelights there. And then in the church, there was a sort of special benediction ceremony and also, again, on this eighth day, the name of the newborn infant was publicly announced. In the room, in the purple room to say so, the baby was placed uh, in the cradle and the mother and the child were covered with all sorts of spreads which were gold woven. And then, basically, there's all sorts of uh, functionaries and, and dignitaries from the court who can just come into the bedroom to bring their good wishes and to bring their gifts also. Now, what is interesting is also that the Book of Ceremony mentions a sort of, I'd say, soup or a sort of beverage also called the Logosima. And this was a very nourishing soup, which was sort of distributed in the streets of Constantinople, and which was drunk for the health of the for the good health of the empress. And this again, interesting, for a period of here we go again seven days. So um, perhaps you know uh, even better about these traditions. I sort of had to look it up, but I found that uh, the logosema actually consists of, of, of water, then sticks of cinnamon, then cloves, and then uh, a sort of um, red, pink, red sugar. Um, anthropologists would say that the, the red color is also very... Uh, ah, yes. Um, and it appears that that this is still a tradition which uh, survives in, in 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 Turkey nowadays. Oh. No. So yeah, I know a case from the eighth century when the emperor would set up tables and uh, along all the main streets and boulevards of Constantinople, and this would be offered to all of the populace, like the emperor is treating you to the lahozema. Yeah, absolutely. So so it just everyone is 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 kind yeah, of yeah, celebrating yeah and celebrating uh, the joy of the imperial house and it was important that that this was like a a strong uh, beverage really so a nourishing soup uh so that's that's part of the symbolism too i guess yeah so let's turn to the mother now because it appears that mothers dying during childbirth was fairly common Again, can we estimate like the demographic impact of this or, mm -hmm. you know, what what effect it, it had, um, you know, on the society as a whole before we turn to the effect it had on the family? 
Yeah. Um, again, these are only estimates we can make um, sort of based on what World Health Organization will, will, will tell us about 19th and 20th century societies. But it is said that uh, every single childbirth was something like 170 times more dangerous, that is possibly implying the death of the mother, than it is in a contemporary Western country. Um, if you think about the fact that uh, in Greco-Roman antiquity and in Byzantine times, a mother had to give birth, let's say, between six and eight times in order to have a family cons consisting of two or three children, well, each time this childbirth is like, say, 170 times more dangerous. Right. So it means, again, that there is a chance of course, not a huge chance, but a fair possibility that the mother would not survive. And this brings us, of course, if you ask about the impact for the family, to that very difficult question, what if the mother does not survive when she dies in childbirth and when the infant survives? And again, there's interesting anthropological evidence there. So it appears to be the case that um, children, um, so babies whose mother uh, has died, have something like 170 times more chance of uh, dying than their colleagues, to say so, or their uh, well, the other babies yeah. uh, whose mother uh, is still alive. And this can be for many different reasons. Uh, for instance, for lack of milk, because of course you sort of kind of uh, fastly need to find someone who can replace the mother, can also be related with sort of uh, religious beliefs, saying that this child has actually caused his mother to die, that he or she would be a doomed child, um, all sorts of practical reasons which can make it more difficult for the child to survive. So we know that uh, these children... Uh, were more in danger. Mm -hmm. And there is a whole tradition starting from ancient Greek epigrams over uh, Roman sources up to Byzantine sources, uh, a whole tradition on what to do with a baby when the mother has died in childbirth. Yeah, and you also at some point mentioned the dangers posed by stepmothers. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, like the evil stepmother, which we think of as a sort of fairy tale motif, yeah, it's that, actually that, a real risk, right? So the risk would be that the husband then marries again in order to have, sure. you know, mm -hmm. both, you know, to continue the family, but also to have a mother for existing children. But the stepmother is yeah, not so interested in the previous wife's sure. children, sure. right? Yeah, it, it is. It is, of course, a cliche, but it's also a literary motif. And, and, and yes. this is grounded in some reality which must have been there, like we also, for instance, for Greco-Roman antiquity up to nowadays, uh, read about the so-called um, mother-in-law belt. So the uh, idea that, well, surely when, when, when a younger girl uh, just lives in the house of her husband, there is demographically, there is a significant chance that his mother is still alive. And this mother-in-law uh, uh, will often not uh, not treat her, um, her daughter-in-law that well. 
while she, when she then gets older and she survives her husband and she will have a son and then a new daughter-in-law uh, will come in the house, then she will sort of take revenge for this and then she will act as the, as the severe mother-in-law. So this is a phenomenon which is anthropologically very well known, which could also make a pregnancy and childbirth for a young daughter-in-law more dangerous. And again, we have testimonies about this from, from Greco-Roman antiquity uh, up to nowadays. Yeah. So tell us also about wet nurses. Now, some of the audience might not know exactly what that is, even though it was pretty common even in Europe, like last century. Mm -hmm. um, so what is a wet nurse and where do you get one? Yeah, perhaps a more popular translation would be nanny, but it's not entirely the same, of course. So uh, let's say that a wet nurse would be a nanny who uh, also who, or who mainly uh, breastfeeds. So you would take a servant or a slave just to breastfeed your child. It is very interesting to take into account, of course, that this woman whom you take as a wet nurse, that she must have had a baby of her own quite recently, or at least must have continued the, the custom, the mm -hmm. habit of breastfeeding for a long time. Now, why would you do so? This is interesting, of course. There are some uh, ancient Greco-Roman ideals connected to aesthetics, so that it wasn't perhaps good for the aesthetics of the aristocratic body that you would breastfeed yourself. Could also have to do with a sort of contempt for physical work. Um, some scholars have related it also to sort of um, uh, um, distancing, emotional distancing. So taking into account the, the huge infant mortality that uh, uh, mothers would just like to be distanced for at least one or two years from their infant uh, children. Uh, so these may all be motifs, but a very practical motif would, of course, be uh, when there are just problems, when the mother is just not uh, able uh, to give her milk uh, herself. Because it's, it's very important to take into account when, when you read all these ancient sources, Greco-Roman sources about wet nurses, that is, is mainly about higher or at least middling classes. Um, they also made contracts, wet nursing contracts, where you can see that the lactation period was sometimes up to three years, by the way. But the normal situation, the mother just breastfeeding it herself, would not need a contract. So that is not that often mentioned in the sources, though this was, of course, the more common occurrence. Yeah, so now, an, an interesting idea would be what happened in, 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 uh, in Christian times. Because, mm. of course, in Christian times, you have very much this idea of the Theotokos. So basically, Virgin Mary breastfeeding Jesus right. herself. Yeah? And the more Mary gets important, uh, the more this could also influence the image, at least the imagery of, 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 of uh, motherhood. And there are some, some really interesting uh, Byzantine cases, again, in the lives, of course, of, of, the, of the saints. So I found one from the 9th century concerning the patriarch uh, Ignatius where it is said that there is a mother of, of three children and she has what is called dry milk. Well, whatever that may be, we can imagine, of course, that she cannot really breastfeed her three children. 
she has to recur to a wet nurse, which she does. But then by drinking a potion and by being in contact with the relics of the saint, she gets healed and she can breastfeed herself again, which is interesting here. So in this Christian source, the ideal situation is obviously that the mother would breastfeed herself. And this is part of her healing that she can do it again and that she does not need to recur anymore to that wet nurse. Now, now also in Byzantine times, there have always been wet nurses, but I would tend to believe that it was less frequent than the phenomenon was in uh, Greco-Roman times. Yeah, so correct my math here. You mentioned earlier that, let's say, the average um, wife or woman needed to have uh, between six and eight children in order to produce a viable, in order for the family to reproduce itself into the next generation. Right. That means for the population to remain stable. And I think we know that in times when there isn't like plague or famine or war, the population tends to increase very, very slightly, like 0.01% or something over time. So there is a slight increase. And because of the risk of childbirth, it means that uh, women begin to give birth to children fairly young, you know, maybe around 15, mm-hmm. and, you know, continue until they're you know, maybe 30 or something. But mm-hmm. it means that women are very often, like most of the time, they're either pregnant or breastfeeding. Yep. So that means that it's it would be fairly easy to find a wet nurse in that most of the women in that range around you, like about half of them were probably breastfeeding if, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe not half, maybe anyway, some very large number. Um, so this would explain how this can be a very common thing. Now, I just have the impression that in like village communities, this tended to happen pretty often, you know, who's breastfeeding, give the infant mm-hmm. to that, you know, something like that. Yeah, that that's, that's, Obviously true, absolutely. I think that technically we would not really call that wet nurse because a wet nurse is mostly someone with whom you have a contract and you just ask her to do this for a certain period of time and just uh, you just pay her for this unless it's your slave, of course, then you just uh, sort of uh, uh, order her to do this. But as you rightly mentioned, there's also all sorts of other solutions within the uh, broader family or the broader community, which brings us to a a very, uh, well, to our, uh, well, just to our tastes to say, so this sounds like like really odd, but this is the phenomenon of the um, breastfeeding grandmother. Yes. But if you look at it, anthropologically again, so I just found some statistics about this, so um, if you look at countries where they still face real problems of um, mothers dying in childbirth, uh, there's a sample of 30 countries. Well, in 10 out of, the, out of these 30 countries, the first solution to supply for the mother's milk is the grandmother. And why is this? This is, of course... For many reasons. First of all, we find this odd because we often connote grandmotherhood to old age, which doesn't need to be the case at all. 
Nice. It is perfectly possible if you are a mother for the first time in your late teenage years, it's very much possible to be a grandmother at about age 40. It is very much possible that you as a grandmother are still breastfeeding in the process of breastfeeding because you still have smaller children around. Yeah? So yeah. this is an, an, an obvious possibility. Um, and this must have happened also in, uh, in Byzantine times. Uh, again, so there's a, a ninth century source by, uh, about Niketas of Medikion uh, about his grandmother because um, his uh, mother died when he was only, I guess, eight days um, old. And um, the first who takes care of him is his uh, grandmother. And the word that is used for her taking care of him is uh, the Greek word trephen, which can connote also, well, providing food. It's not explicitly mm -hmm. said that she breastfed, but it is a, uh, it is a possibility. Um, and so for the Roman times, I once published an article on this. So there's two, only two um, Latin inscriptions mentioning an um, avia nutrix. So avia is grandmother in Latin and nutrix is a wet nurse. And um, so in, in one of these inscriptions, two grandchildren uh, mention their grandmother who had been their nurse. So it's not that she was also a wet nurse or something. It was really their nurse. And uh, mostly the Latin nutrix really um, um, implies also the breastfeeding aspect. So it is possible. There are some indications for, for uh, Roman sources, some indications for Byzantine sources that this, so grandmother breastfeeding, uh, may have happened. And I'd say if we just uh, look at the uh, anthropological parallels, this, uh, in my opinion, a, a real possibility, absolutely. Yes, I remember a few years ago, I was at a, I think it was a zoo somewhere in yeah, some other county in Ohio. And uh, there was a woman, she was about 60, and she had a child, maybe about four or something like that. And I don't know, we got to talking and I think we asked like, well, so like, what's your granddaughter's name? And she mm -hmm. said, great granddaughter's name. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, yeah. And you said 40, but I'm thinking if your mother has a daughter at the age of 16 and that daughter has her daughter at the age of 16 that that's early 30s that's yeah yeah could even be early 30s i guess I'm, I'm not sure about this but i think we there are some papyri mentioning uh grandmothers of age 35 or something absolutely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um so i mean we're almost out of time and there were some other questions that i had thought of asking you but over the course of our conversation the, the following one has occurred to me and this is more of a kind of methodological issue that yeah, I haven't studied systematic. A lot of the data that you use, so when you say anthropology um, or when you mention uh, societies like in what we would call the developing world where we get a lot of this comparative data, like if you want to know what life was like in these kinds of you know health parameters, demographic parameters um, in pre-modern societies, we often look to those countries. So I, I understand that that is... Hypothetical to a certain degree, because you know there, there are very big differences between modern to post-colonial countries and you know medieval. I always use these comparisons as a sort of 
indication of possibilities. Yeah? But I never ever want to make the point that, that these societies were kind of the same. Yeah? It's mm. just well, well, possibilities which are there. Uh, a, a book that I uh, would very much like to recommend on this is a very recent one by, by uh, Anna Boozer from Baruch University in New York. And she uh, actually writes about growing up in Greco-Roman Egypt. Now, she is very uh, knowledgeable about uh, present-day South Egypt and Sudan also, because she has excavated there for some years. And she will often also make these comparisons and also point to nine 19th century uh, uh, surveys where where uh, people scholars wanted to make the point that ancient Egypt just lived on up to the 19th century. Mm. And based on her experience, she will always say, "Yes, there are certain rights, there are certain things which still co- go on and which are sort of." recognizable already from antiquity and you find them nowadays or in the 19th century. But this being said, one cannot ever claim that, for instance, uh, present-day Sudan or people in present-day Sudan would live in the same conditions as uh, people in antiquity. So it's always, uh, it's instructive, it's, it's, it's useful, it, 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 well, we can learn a lot from these comparisons, but we always need to take into account the the proper context, of course, of the civilization uh, we are studying. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts before we? Uh... Yeah. No. No. Just just going on on this. So, for instance, the idea um, that uh, childhood is a uh, an infancy is a very dangerous period. Um, uh, that there might be sort of goddesses or sort of evil witches or whatever coming and just taking your child away or killing Mm. it. Well, this is an idea you find in many, many cultures. And so for Greco-Roman antiquity, you have the idea already of of the gelo, so the sort of evil woman, sort of witch who would do this um, in the Latin West Middle Ages. You find the idea of sort of um, blood-sucking witches, and you find the gelo also in, in Byzantine times, obviously, including the idea of protective amulets. And then, well, this is sort of enlightening because you see, again, these people realized that uh, infancy was a dangerous period. And there's also something like this psychology, often these gelo or these gelone or, or these gelones, these creatures were often uh, failed uh, mothers themselves. Mm. So in legends, it's often about women yeah. who for some reason or another lost their own child and then they just want to take revenge no? yeah and, and, and so Salos, uh, wrote a treatise on the yellow yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah well they and i'm sure they had to find a way to blame the women sure the, the, yeah, yeah yeah sure the, there's reports also on this in there's an, a ninth century uh document from from constantinople where some women were arrested um, and it was said that, well, their crime would have been that they sort of managed to enter into the houses, even when the doors were closed, so just through the walls or whatever, as sort of witches, and they just uh, killed babies. Yeah. Ah, yes, um, that's an idea for another horror story. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so put- you will find in the popular press, you find such horror stories even uh, nowadays. In, in my book on childhood, I quote one from from uh, from Oklahoma. And uh, again, in a way, one can say that that there's sort of well, that one can compare that with the tradition of the of uh, of the gelo or the witches from eighth uh, century. Was it eighth century Constantinople? Uh, that's an excellent note. 
on which very appropriate for 2022. So uh, what we're going through. Okay. Uh, Thank you, Christian. That was very, very illuminating. And thank you for continuing to work on these very difficult topics, but they're necessary topics. Thank you for having me again. It was a great pleasure to do so.